0: The PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome back, listeners. We're continuing with Dr. Riley, a discussion on vertebral body tethering and spinal scoliosis management. Well, let me ask you this. How do you decide what are the indications for VBT versus the posterior spinal fusion? How do you choose your patients?
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And without a doubt, the primary mode of failure in the first few years of vertebral body tethering was poor indications. Again, it's a rope. It's not a rod. It doesn't have the ductility of the rod or in some senses, The fatigue strength and things like that, it will fail at some point, and it's not as powerful in terms of corrective prowess. So most of our failures, and this is how we get to our indications, came from curves that were too small, too young, or too big, too old, or too stiff so as we've learned from our mistakes and from overcorrections and undercorrections and things like that what it comes down to for me so far is a progressive curve that has failed physical therapy and bracing that is between 40 and probably 60 degrees has a good amount of growth remaining which we measure by their or score and their hand age so a RISR score zero is really kind of the optimal. A RISR one is probably acceptable as well. So that not only do we get correction during surgery, but we get further correction with growth. So the prime indications would be a 40 to 60 degree progressive curve that failed non-operative management, still has significant growth remaining. And on bending films, meaning we have them bend over to the side and take an X-ray prior to surgery, correct greater than 30% of its original size, meaning that it's a flexible curve and it will respond to the
0: rope. Those would be the ideal indications. Rotational deformity. You had made a discussion point about this in your talk. Does the VBT do anything for rotational deformity uh, with the scoliosis patient?
1: Yes, it does. It doesn't do it as well as the fusion does. I would say if your typical fusion fixes about 75% of the rotational deformity, in my hands, VBT corrects about 50% of it. There are unfortunately surgeons out there who either neglect to mention that or claim that their particular version or technique of doing uh, VBT is different and allows for more rotational control than that. But I can tell you, I've seen their post-operative patients. These are patients who undergo something called ASC or anterior spinal correction. And this is usually done by a particular group. I can tell you it is it is not. It is not better. So VBT will get you about 50% rotational correction, fusion about 75. And those are super broad numbers. I've seen better and I've seen worse. That again is just something to be really careful with when you talk to the, the patient. When the patient bends forward and you see that rotational deformity, Uh, the famous Adams forward bend test, if that rotational prominence is a primary cause of unhappiness for the patient, then I try to make it crystal clear that VBT will not correct that as well as fusion. Now we might get lucky and it might be a real home run for that particular individual, but in general, it's not going to do as good of a job. And so if it is a very high priority for that young lady to have that rotational prominence as unnoticeable as possible, then VBT is not going to do the job as well as fusion. So that is a big difference in my mind between the two. But at the same time, I'm not sure I've ever had a young person, even if they were concerned about their physical appearance, who felt that that was such a priority that they would rather have a fusion compared to VBT. But it is something I want to be crystal clear about when I talk to those
0: patients. Let's talk about postoperatively. What have been your results when you compare VBT to the posterior spinal fusion with things like range of motion, return to activity? I know you said that many of your patients were ballerinas. What about that? How do you manage your folks postoperatively? There are two factors that play into that.
1: One is that posterior spinal fusion, the return to activity has become gradually Faster and faster over the years. It used to be that we would hold them out of activities for at least six months, if not longer. Now, typically for me, it's between two and four months. If we compare the two directly, I would say post operative pain control is slightly but significantly better for the VBT patients. Their hospital stay is on average about a day shorter, and their number of days until they're completely off of narcotics is about two days faster for VBT. So they get off of the narcotics faster. We allow our VBT patients to go back to full activities at six weeks. And so far, we have not had a single early failure due to that early return to activities. No screws have pulled out. No tethers have ruptured immediately. So the post-operative protocol is... Uh, kind of a ridiculously quick return to normal life. And I think just in talking to my PAs who see these patients as much as I do postoperatively, they see a, a really big difference as well. I think the VBT patients just plain old bounce back quicker. Thankfully, we've never had a permanent neurologic injury following any of our spine surgeries, fusion or VBT. But the really amazing thing when it comes to neurologic function for VBT is that during the surgery itself, while we're monitoring the neurologic function, we've never even had a nerve monitoring alert with VBT. Whereas with fusion, we have a nerve monitoring alert, meaning that the monitoring is showing us that the spinal cord is under significant stress about one in every 20 surgeries. So there are, so far, in terms of safety, post-operative rapid recovery, and return to activities. VBT is significantly superior. And yes, almost all of these young people are either ballerinas or gymnasts or baseball players, people who need a lot of motion out of their spine. And again, in our in my practice, I can definitely see the difference. And uh, Josh Pay, he's in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery just last month, His comparison between VBT and posterior spinal fusion postoperatively up to two years shows a significant difference in range of motion where VBT is uh, superior to posterior spinal fusion.
0: I know it's case dependent. It has to meet the indications. But would you say you do a, a certain percentage of VBTs now compared to, say, maybe five or 10 years ago where you would do the spinal fusion?
1: We started doing VBT, I believe, in uh, early 2019. And prior to that, my practice was probably 80% posterior spinal fusion. And then the remaining cases were kids who were too small, too young to fuse. And so we would use growth rods and things like that, which eventually lead to fusion. Overall, that leads to almost a 100% fusion rate. Now I would say... and Part of this is driven by insurance carriers as well, unfortunately. They really want us to stick with fusion for now. But I would say overall, my practice has gone to slightly greater than 50% vertebral body tethering and slightly less than 50% fusion. And if I had to project into the future, I would say eventually it's probably going to be about 75% VBT, 25% fusion.
0: Wow. And, you know, again, listeners, if you see the videos and some of the case studies that Dr. Riley presented, you will see why this is such a fascinating and awesome technique. Dr. Riley, did we miss anything today or anything that you would like to discuss further? I would just say that
1: although it may sound like, you know, I want to trumpet the virtues of VBT to the world, it is still a very young procedure. We are learning so much about the technique, the indications. Improvements have to be made in the materials and the instrumentation. So although it is wonderful, uh, the short-term results are amazing. We do have to temper our enthusiasm at least a little bit and just be very honest about the lack of long-term data and follow-up. Make sure that we do a good job of collecting that and do a good job of modifying and improving our indications between now and then. Beyond that, the safety of it is remarkable. We still have not had a single infection. Neurologically, the patients are very safe. They do very well. I think what this really represents is the first step toward fusionless spine care that allows for a continued motion, uh, sharing of stress across segments. And my best guess is that VBT is just version 1.0 and that things will get continually better
0: from here on out, which is incredibly exciting. Absolutely. Dr. Riley, thank you for being on our podcast today. And I'm sure our listeners are going to love this. I
1: really appreciate it, guys. And uh, whatever you need from me, I'm, I'm happy to talk more. Like I said, I could talk
0: forever about this. So thanks so much. Listeners, we wanted to make you aware of our second annual orthopedic boot camp, This will be in Charlotte, November the 4th through the 6th. Registration information is on our website, PAOS.org. And I hope to see you there.